This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. I'm Josh Rapoon, and this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Thank you, series listeners. Because of you, our series has been downloaded tens of thousands of times around the world. We appreciate that you care to listen to the stories of imaginative and creative educators and education leaders across the Hawaiian Islands. Mahalo. In the last episode, we talked to Pookumu Kaulana-Smith, the Director of Curriculum and Instruction at Laupahoehoe Community Public Charter School on Hawaii Island. My guest today is Ululani Shiraishi, a Kamehameha Schools Maui Middle School Language Arts teacher who is deep into SEL, Hawaiian culture, and transdisciplinary teaching and learning. She is on the KS Maui Middle School Leadership Team and is a close partner with Kui Kaparo, one of my early guests on this podcast in season one. Ululani is a graduate of the Kamehameha School's Kealaula Innovation Institute, which is a creative learning program where Kamehameha School's teachers focus on professional development. The program spotlights learning in terms of creativity, problem solving, and critical thinking, skills that are essential for students to succeed today and tomorrow. Ululani also taught in Hawaii's public schools as a national board certified teacher. At Kamehameha Schools Maui, Ululani is an ardent believer in simultaneously teaching the heart and intellect of kids through engaging inquiry-based learning experiences. She is currently working on a graduate degree in student learning and well-being. Hope, self-efficacy, curiosity, and good old-fashioned hard work drive her teaching and life. And now, here's my conversation with Ululani Shiraishi. Ululani, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. This is um, super awesome for me because obviously you were recommended by my nephew, Evan. Um, and in the process of getting ready for this interview, I've we've learned so much about each other already through texting and all of that. So I'm super stoked for this moment. Um, so let's get started. Um, for the next little bit, I'm going to fire a bunch of questions at you and you just knock them out of the park. So here's question number one. Um, so... Ululani, in Hawaii, when we meet someone for the first time, we pretty automatically ask where they are from. And if asked, I would say, um, I'm from Kahalu on the windward side of Oahu. But if I was asked, where are you coming from? That is a completely different question. So Ululani, where are you from? But equally important, where are you coming from? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I I was born and raised in Gardena, California. Um, but the place that feeds me is Maui. And the place that I feel like I'm from and, and is who I am is Maui. And my mom is from Hana and my dad is from Kipohulu. And as we were growing up in like the later... Uh, elementary, middle school years, they would ship us out to our grandparents in Hana and Kipohulu, and we would spend the whole summer there. 
and this was continuous for for like I said my upper middle upper elementary and middle school and it just became unknowingly at the time but became who I am and uh it 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 defined the core of who I am, which is hard to actually put words to it. And so I knew that when I graduated from college that I was going to move back to Maui. There was no question. And my last final in college was at two and I was on a, on a flight at four to move here to Maui. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew that I wanted to be a teacher since I was eight years old and I lined up all of my stuffed animals by my chalkboard and taught them all the things that they needed to know about the world. <laughs> and um, yeah, so um, I am was born and raised in California, but I feel like I am from Maui. Mm-hmm. And then what was the second part of your question again? Where are you coming from? Mm-hmm. Where am I coming from? And as I ponder that, I... Oh, that could be so many different things, but I feel like I'm coming from a frantic thriving into a messy confidence. Wow. Tell me more. Um, I, my husband and I have three young adult children and it, I just felt it just as far back as I can remember as it just has, there's so much in parenting and teaching and and how those those combine together to to fill your life up with just this uh, bundle of adventure and experiences and challenge and frustration and and success and joy and all of those things and in the midst of it i just internally have this uh, that just charges life and, and seizes it and looks for opportunities and, and, and looks for sit on the edge of my seat kinds of opportunities. And so there can be a franticness to that. And our kids, uh, our youngest daughter is um, going to graduate from college in December. And so I've had about four years without kids in the house and to be able to kind of settle into who am I today um, as a as a wife, as a mom, as a teacher, as a friend. And I feel like I, I'm more settled in in that and, and where I want to go and and what my strengths are and how to walk in those strengths. And I'm more focused in in what that is. And so I'm more intentional about the choices that I make and and the things I allow into my life and onto my plate and, and the things I pour into. And it's still messy because learning is messy and 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 tapping into different people and resources and experiences and adventures gets messy but there's a quiet assurity that is more settled within me Mm. you know the reason why i ask the question that way where are you coming from for for years and especially during the time when i started to do this most likely to succeed work and would have these meetings Mm -hmm. and they would always start with where are you from where are you from and we would go Mm -hmm. around the room and it was it was always a place um and then one day i was doing a sort of a short design thinking bootcamp with some people 
Um, and it just popped into my head to reframe the question. And wow, mm -hmm. the magic that happened after that was extraordinary. Yeah. It was just all of a sudden I heard things that mm. I don't think I would have heard had I not asked it that way. Um, and so I, I really love the idea that everybody is from some place, but everybody is coming from some place. And mm -hmm. um, I, I love what you said about that. It's actually a perfect segue into this next question, which is, so let's let's start with a long break you took between teaching positions, which I found super intriguing. Um, mm. you, you taught fifth grade in our Hawaii public schools for, uh, about 20 years ago, but then took 11 years away from teaching to mm -hmm. focus on being a wife and a mom. So my question is, what did your early teaching bring to your role as a wife and a mom? And what did your role as a wife and a mom bring to your teaching after the 11 year break? Oh, uh, that's a fabulous question because I, well, because I think about it all the time and that's mm -hmm. what I feel like my whole life is, uh, is about. It's, it's not separate. It's the same. And, and I, I am wholly a hundred percent a wife and I'm a hundred percent a mom and I'm a hundred percent a teacher and it all just feeds each other interdependently on each other and everything that I learn in one place fuels and feeds and connects to the other place. And both of those roles are so similar from the core, from the, from the transfer knowledge that happens. It's really core. And even the academic side of it, because I'm an English teacher. And so, you know, when you're teaching your kids language and, and how to use respectful words and word choice and specificity of language and, you know, organizing your thinking to be able to communicate effectively. You know, it, it all just feeds into each other. But more specifically to your question, I very distinctively remember the couple months after I stopped teaching and stayed home, I lesson planned my life. I, I took <laughs> my lesson plans from school and I lesson planned my life and mm -hmm. it, and it, I loved it because I felt like I was efficient and we were doing things. And literally when I had three toddlers at home, every half an hour was planned and scheduled. Even if that half an hour was a nap, even if that half an hour was um, a snack, it was all scheduled out and it flowed really well. And, um, it just helped to keep us organized and keep us thriving. But then that, like I said earlier, was kind of the frantic thriving because right. we just kept doing more. And so, mm -hmm. and so, and then when I went back to school, it just being with kids and understanding kids and being empathetic helped as a teacher and as a parent, as I talked to parents also. So that's what I was going to ask about is, you know, do you remember that moment after the 11 years when you first stepped back into the teaching role? And, you mm -hmm. know, what, what were your thoughts at that point about, you know, how the, the, the last 11 years, the history of the last 11 years was in your suitcase as you came back into that role again, you're carrying it mm -hmm. with you. Um, I, the biggest difference was that now every kid that walked into my door, they were my kid mm. and, and my kid sat in that seat. And so the intensity or the, the attention increased because 
I knew the love of a mother mm-hmm. and I knew the, the amount of time and effort and patience and frustration and, and, and learning levels and differences. And it gave me a different, I walked into school with a different heart for kids and for, for them and who they are mm-hmm. outside of just the academic content. Mm, wow. I, my daughter is, my daughter Emma is 29 uh, at the end of mm-hmm. October here. And she was raised um, by her mom, mostly in California. Uh, we separated when she was three, but she spent a huge amount of time with me here in Hawaii every summer, mm-hmm. all summer long, every spring break, mm. every Christmas break, every Thanksgiving break. And I was teaching uh, at La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls during that time. And she was with me in the classroom constantly. Every time she came, you know, it always seemed to overlap with when I was teaching. Um, and I never really realized until just a couple of years later or a couple of years ago, now she's a kindergarten teacher in California mm. and how mm-hmm. much she was absorbing, you know, mm-hmm. in all those times that she was spending in the classroom. And I, I hear you when you say that it's like every kid is your child. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I really enjoyed about that La Pietra experience, especially with small class sizes where you could, you know, you could really make that happen. Um, mm-hmm. so that's very cool. So, okay. So your resume starts with the following statement. You say, uh, or you describe yourself as student focused middle school ELA teacher with 15 years of experience designing and implementing a diverse ELA based curriculum highly skilled at motivating students through relevant learning and authentic feedback through inquiry-based collaborative learning experiences. So my question is about motivating students. Over these 15 years, what have you learned about what it takes to motivate students? And I I recognize this is a ginormous question (laughs) um, right out of the gate, but you know, let her rip and let's let's see where this goes. What does it take to motivate students? First of all, I think it's relationship and you, and they need to know that you are interested in them, that, that I see them and that I know them and that I desire to, to understand who they are, who's sitting in that chair and feeding or knowing their heart before I teach their brain. And I feel like that helps us the relationship part. And then moving from there, building on top of that to be able to provide experiences that kids are engaged in, in in incorporating personalized learning, finding what they're interested in. And again, that's a loaded question because, you know, that's a whole discovery process and, and that discovery process of them finding out who they are, what they enjoy doing, um, really what they enjoy doing because I think a lot of us will on the surface say oh I like basketball or or I like you know art and then sometimes as we peel back some layers we discover that there's deeper things about topics that we enjoy and and helping kids discover and peel back and and sit with a whole variety of things that they enjoy and how do we then incorporate that into learning so that they come into the classroom engaging in what interests them I think in a lot of teachers' minds, they don't see where the time exists to do that kind of work in the beginning mm. when you're first mm-hmm. working with students. So, you know, what are your thoughts about that? What, how do you, what are your thoughts about that? Um, earlier, I had talked about um, 
how teaching and life, it's, it's not separate. It's the same. And if we look at our own experiences and we think about how do we learn and, and what motivates us and, and we sit with ourselves for a while to understand that process, I think that it would help teachers to realize that we need to be there and engaged and learning around things that we're interested in and the motivation increases on its own because we're interested in it. And if we can really like understand that, own it, live it, we have an easier time as teachers to put the time and effort there to be able to ready the palette for the masterpiece. I That's awesome. I think what I'm feeling really encouraged about right now is that more and more, especially doing these interviews for this podcast, I'm hearing teachers talk about it that way. They're talking about how important relationships are where I don't think I would have heard that five years ago or 10 mm -hmm. years ago. And so they're starting to kind of reprioritize in their mind how things begin when you work with students. And uh, that just, it, I'm feeling very hopeful about that. So, hey listeners, let's take a minute to reintroduce today's guest. Ululani Shiraishi is a Kamehameha Schools Maui Middle School ELA teacher, a graduate of the Kealaula Innovation Institute, and a national board certified teacher. So, Ululani, um, you are currently working on a graduate degree from the University of Missouri, correct? Yes. Awesome. So I actually have two questions about this. Um, the first is for all our educator listeners out there who do not have graduate degrees, what is the value of getting one given the expense and the time? And how does the getting of the degree change you as a person? Oh, wow. You have such great questions, Josh. <laughs> um, seriously, like they just make you go, hmm. Um, it, the, my journey in this has been one that I feel like we very often as teachers, we, we know a lot of things, but sometimes we don't know them deeply. And so in order to teach them, we have to know it deeply. We have to sit with it, ponder it. We have to like take it apart, mess with it, scratch it out, highlight it, scratch it out again. And moving through a graduate program has forced me to have to do all that, to kind of take some things that I know, connect it to things that I'm learning, to deepen that understanding around the value and the structure and the process of data-based instructional decisions about proactive behavior management, you know, and I think as teachers, we're so busy. There's so many things that we need to do or ask of us. And we sometimes are like flailing around because and trying to just grasp onto some hold to be able to steady ourselves. Mm -hmm. And going through this graduate program has helped me to grab hold of some things and to steady myself in areas that I knew things about, but possibly didn't know them deeply. 
Are th- are there moments where I'm sure this happens, so it's a bit rhetorical, I bet, but where you you deep dive into something that you're really trying to know, and all of a sudden it happens, and your your brain kind of you know the top of your head comes off, and you're like, wow, I'm I'm falling into a very very deep dive into something. Yes, yes, and I think it it goes back to the beginning um, question that you asked, uh, and my response was the messy confidence. Because this whole learning thing is is messy and, and diving into a master's program is messy because it just adds so many new pieces of knowledge into already kind of all that's in a teacher's brain. Um, but it does help to kind of hone in and it, it settles me into, helps me to understand those places that I want to dive deeper into because all of this in the end is to impact student learning but my also my I think my bigger focus is on people and and students who they are and not just the the content part of it, but supporting who they are to be able to help them to walk into their own learning journey and to find what that is as I provide heart help mm. and skill help. Mm. So cool. So this so the second question uh, in within this question is, has to do with certification. So, um, well, certification is what a graduate degree does for you. So being certified in my mind is a pretty cool thing. I've only been officially certified for one thing in my life, but I, I it means a lot to me. Um, so what are you wanting to be certified in? Honestly, whatever those papers say, is not really my focus as my more of my focus is on the information and the knowledge that I'm getting and how do I connect that to serving people and students and how do I use that knowledge to be able to more positively impact the places that I'm in. And so the paper will give me a higher pay. It will be some letters after my name. Um, it could potentially be a paper I put on the wall mm-hmm. while the depth of it and the, the why of it is really to be able to gather all of the information to better support people and care about people and help people to find who they are and what their purpose is here and how to help them to be able to open up some doors for them to be. And when I say people, and because I am a teacher, but I also feel like I'm here to impact my fellow teachers, my peers, the the cashier at, at Foodland, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's everywhere that we're at. So how do I use that knowledge that this certificate is going to give me to positively impact the places I am? Mm. So, wow, that's awesome. Um, so I want to actually want to come at this question, the same question slightly mm-hmm. from a slightly different angle, but I'm going to tell you just a super quick story that will help me to ask mm-hmm. the question. So my, my certification is actually, actually came to me more than 40 years ago when I was um, certified as a professional chef. So that was my first career in life out of high school and I hadn't really even gone to college yet. Um, and so I went to something called the California Culinary Academy in San Francisco and I was certified as a professional chef. And um, lo, these many years later, um, 
I am coming to realize what the value of that certification really was. And it was, as you say, it wasn't in the piece of paper or what I hang on the wall here in my studio. It was actually about something I learned about myself, which is, you know, mm. they're, they're the frontline chefs. Yeah. You go to a restaurant, the guys with the tall hats mm-hmm. and the flames are everywhere and they're, mm-hmm. they're knocking out the meals. That was not me. I could never be that kind of chef. Where I excelled was actually in the back of the house. I was an organizer. I was a prep mm. cook, a prep chef. And I loved mm-hmm. getting everything ready for other people so that they could do the cooking, right? And so, and I, I, I love the fact that it took four decades for me to sort of figure mm. that out. And I think my mm-hmm. question for you is like, if you look ahead 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, like what what is it that you think you might learn way around the corner up ahead that comes out of this graduate degree process? Hmm. Um, what will I learn? What, I, I agree with you. What might you realize about yourself? Maybe in the same way mm-hmm. that I did. Yeah. Um, like you, I think that oftentimes the degree and the knowledge learned, the specific knowledge learned, isn't really the life lessons. It's it's a journey to it possibly or some of the the transfer knowledge that happens such as because i'm 53 so in 10 years i probably won't be in a classroom but i'll still be doing what i do Mm -hmm. um but i believe like it's but it, the grit, like you never stop learning, like keep digging in. It doesn't matter how old you are or where you're at. There's always something to learn. Keep your eyes open. Keep keep your head up. Keep looking out to be able to see what's out there. And I think that this going through this program is just helping me to keep moving forward that you know, there are so many exciting opportunities out there and I want to keep going after it. Mm. And you're never too old or you're never too short or you're never too, you know, I don't know, like we can always like we're to this or to that and hinder us from taking the next step. Mm. And so I feel like this, what I will look back on is maybe it's the courage to be able to go back to school after not being in school for Mm. so long. Maybe it's um, doing something that I was scared to do, but did it anyway. Mm. Hmm. Sometimes I I think, you know, what a cool feeling it is when you've got like a day off coming up next week. And you're, mm-hmm. you're already thinking about, you know, what kind of, I'm, I'm, it makes me sound like such an education geek, but, you know, what kind of cool thing can I be working on on that day off, right? And yeah. it, it's that yeah. kind of idea. Well, let's just project yeah. that forward 10 years, you know, maybe there's going to be a year in there where you can deep dive into something else that might happen over the course of the next 10 years. Yes. Yes. And I'm excited to be able to do that. And I'm, I'm, and actually, I've already been thinking about it, but something that's different than teaching in a classroom, but still uses those same skills. Like when you were doing the chef 
time in your life, it, you realize it was organizational skills that emerged right. as something you were really good at. And so you take that skill and you put it someplace else. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to just continuing to take the next step and seeing what lives at the next step. Mm, that's awesome. So, okay. So we're going to, we're going to shift just slightly here, but um, I want to talk about COVID-19 because of course we have to, at some point we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and, you know, I want to talk about what is emerging to me as a, a pretty overused word, which is pivot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> so in truth, I, I don't want to talk about pivot in the educational sense as in in-person learning versus distance learning and such. I want to talk about what goes on in the head and the heart, what goes on in the mind and the soul when one is forced to pivot by outside forces. So, you know, what is your human experience in this moment with pivoting and in what ways, you know, has the universe guided you as you've shifted positions in the last eight months? Mm. For my human, like my, where I sit and where I stand, you're asking that question. Yes. Um, I think for one, it has strengthened my marriage in that my husband's also a teacher. And so he's home and we just have, we, we engage in, in our day together, which didn't happen so often. Um, it's paused it's given me pause to be able to add to that settling into messy confidence that I talked about. And it's giving me some moments, even in the franticness of trying to, to change over into digital learning. It's um, given me a pause to be able to throw everything up in my life. And, and as things start to kind of settle down in, to be able to decide what I want to keep and what I don't. So that's helped to just hone in on what's important and where I want to go forward with it. And are you also asking about teaching or just generally yeah, speaking? Yeah, for sure. The whole gamut. Yeah. Teaching has been, I mean, it's, it's forced us to, again, with that, with teaching, throw it all up in the air because it's the pandemic has thrown it all up in the air. And then, kind of reevaluating who who am I in this place? I'm asking my students to dive into design thinking, inquiry learning, to to personalize their learning. And I'm asking them to do that. Here I am. And I stand at the door of, of the opportunity to be able to live it. And so who am I going to be in this moment? And so it's also given me an opportunity to take a look at who I am in this moment, what I'm asking kids to do. And am I brave enough to, to do it myself? And as I walk the journey of design thinking, this process is the empathy that I get in what I'm asking my students to do from timelines to expectations to conversations that I'm having with them to how much to push, how much to step back. It's really impacted what I'm asking, that I'm living, what I'm asking them to do. And that even right now, we're walking it together, my students and I, and mm-hmm. my coworkers. You know, we're my our fellow teachers. We're all figuring out together, and it's one of the great things that has emerged. I feel like on our campus is that this is really hard and different, and so we're needing to reach out to each other and ask for help and to lend help and to be available. And so, in that, we're able to 
deepen those relationships personally and professionally with our coworkers to be able to navigate this time. Mm. You know, I, I love the idea of a crucible um, that you you have this extremely hot furnace and mm-hmm. you you pour some things into it and they are um, shaped by the intensity of the heat and they come out as mm, something else. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I'm wondering, like, are you are on at KS Maui? Are you already back in person or partially in person at this point? Well, tomorrow is our well, at the beginning of the school year, mm. I had two days with sixth graders and then seventh graders came the third day and then we shut down that night. Mm. Tomorrow is going to be my first day back face-to-face with kids. And it'll only be half of the sixth graders. And Mm. then Monday, Tuesday, half of the sixth graders come. And then Thursday, Friday, the other half will come. Wow. So I I, I think the thing that I'm wondering about, wow, perfect timing then to talk about this is that, you know, in the sense of a crucible, everybody has been through it in one way, Mm -hmm. shape or form over the Mm -hmm. last seven or Mm -hmm. eight months. And that as you have kids coming back into your physical presence, what you're thinking about, about who they are and how they've been changed mm. by this. What is the crucible that they've been through? And I guess maybe I'm mm. also wondering what you think about how you will know that as they come mm. back in, or what are the ways that you'll know that? Um, that's a great segue into <laughs> what's going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> right. Because, um, the social studies teacher, Kui um, Gaparo, who you've interviewed, and I are, we have the same kids. And so we are, we've created a unit called um, Ko'umo'olelo, and that's my story. And so we've already talked a little bit about it with the kids, but tomorrow we're going to get them together and really intro it. And it's going to be exploring all the different experiences in a whole slew of experiences in their life from like an observation experience to a full interaction experience and and just how all of those different moments create who we are and it it grows our story and we continue to grow that story. And so we will be entering into our face-to-face time with the kids with that unit Mm -hmm. and helping them to navigate this part of their story and to be able to put words to it or to put artwork to it or to put some tangible artifact to parts of their story to be able to capture it and 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 delve into it and and mess around with it and take it apart and to be able to talk about it write about it create around it to help them to understand who they are and how this is impacting Mm -hmm. them and how they'll use it to come out the other side refined Mm. Wow, that's that must be that will be so wonderful for your kids to be able to come back into it that way. Um, you know, and sometimes my heart hurts for mm. kids who are coming back into environments where the educator, you know, absolutely no disrespect intended, believes that mm-hmm. a bunch of time has been lost, and all of a sudden you have to yeah. quickly slam back into learning a bunch of content and how, how hard that would be considering what everybody's been through. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sounds, if I were a middle schooler and I wish I was again, um, that would be magic to be able to come back into it like that. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I want to, I want to zoom, uh, we're going to, we're going to do one more question here and I want to 
take a short break, but I want to zoom up for a second, way high, like, you know, 15,000, 30,000 feet, and take a look down on Kamehameha School's Maui campus. So, um, you know, it would be an understatement to say that there are folks out there, my nephew, Evan Beachy, chief among them, who are mm-hmm. excited about what's happening at KS Maui's oh. campus, mm-hmm. which was established in 1996. So a quick bit of fact here, Kamehameha Schools Maui is one of three K-12 campuses in the Kamehameha Schools educational system. It enrolls 1,100 students, more or less, uh, K-12 through on a 180-acre campus located in Pukulani, Maui. So... Ululani, what's happening at KS Maui, you know, in the big picture? And and what is Mm -hmm. your role in the school redesign process? Mm. There's some really exciting things happening. Um, As you look at the history of Kamehameha, there have been different times where they've had to reevaluate their purpose and and in relevancy to the time and, and what was going on in in the world or their community at the state of Hawaii in, in that time and how to how do you choose students to or admit students? What is that criteria? What is the content being taught? And and so it has shifted over the years. And and in the recent past there has been a lot of focus on um, Hawaiian culture based education and being um, world class leaders and learners. And so in that process we realize that there's some refining that needs to happen in the structure and the curriculum of the school. And so we are in the process of redesigning our K-12 system. We've shifted from an elementary, middle school and high school to a lower division and an upper division, upper being six to 12. And we're bridging um, learning experiences. We're in the process of figuring out what that looks like, how it could work, what do we want it to look like, what's happening, what are innovative best practice things are happening globally to be able to um, look out, but also at the same time have a Hawaiian cultural Christian foundation in what we do and who we are. Mm -hmm. So it's an exciting time. And I'm part of a team called Keala Ula. And we, and this team is, is redesigning. We're R&Ding and we've traveled um, around the nation and have looked at different models. We have looked in our own backyard and here at home to be able to fuse the best of Hawaiian culture and what our world has to offer also to be able to prepare kids for next steps. Mm. What what are your protocols? What are your team's protocols as you move forward with this work? Like what are some of the, um, the values you've put in place and the you know, the systems that you work through that allow you to, you know, succeed as a team in this redesign process? Mm-hmm. We've, it, it is a long process and there's been a lot of conversation, a lot of think tank meetings. And what we've settled on are, are three kind of um, areas of focus, which is assessment and olaloa or the SEL component in just breathing life. Um, that's our SEL component. And then we also have transdisciplinary learning or curriculum. And so where the desire is to create learning environments and, and not necessarily having our silos of English and social studies and, and science, but it becomes 
a learning environment where kids are are chasing after things that they're interested in, which is personalized learning, and it's inquiry-based, and they're posing questions, they're observing, they're um, wondering, and from those inquiries and wonderings, they're pursuing answers. And in all of that is a service component because we don't just learn for ourselves. We learn to be able to share and positively impact others. So that's a, that's a strong component. And all of that is umbrellaed by our AOLA learner outcomes, mm. which, which look at the past to be able to inform the, the present, which also include things like excellence and growth mindset and self-efficacy and um, service learning and, and again, striving for excellence. So it's, it's a culmination of, of different transferable skills and knowledge that umbrellas the work that we do. And our and guides our our work. Mm. So so it sounds like hard work, but joyful work. <laughs> Is that a fair statement? Yes. Mm. Yes. And 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 the joyful part, like how how is that expressed? Well, for me, because I, I, this is like the edge of my seat kind of work. Mm, I, the, when you work on a team with people who are about it and who bring it and we don't all have the answers and we all have, we all have different strengths that come to the table, which then broaden perspective and make you, like you talked earlier about like the top of your head coming off and then you're like <laughs> brains exploding. It's kind of those moments because you're sitting at this table with people who, who know things and who are excited about it and who have researched and they, they come back and they're excited and it's like, Hey, what about this or that? Or, you know, and it just creates this kind of synergy in the work that, is hopeful and motivating and it's work that's going to positively impact generations. Mm. It's, it's going to impact the world in the sense that these kids step out into the world and they go out and then impact other people. And it's that ripple effect and the kuleana or the responsibility that we have as we sit in these meetings is, is profound. Mm. And, and, not in a sense like, oh, I'm doing great work, but in the sense of it's quieting and it's awing mm. to be able to be a part of this work. And I think about Powahi writing her will and and knowing that she will impact the future, but not knowing how. And so we sit at these tables writing, writing plans, you know, like brainstorming plans, like talking about talking and listening knowing that we're writing possibility, we're writing hope for kids, we're writing hope for future families and communities and nations as we sit there and do that work. And so it's powerful and it's, and it's hard work, like you said, but we're doing it for a larger purpose. And I think when you know that larger purpose and that's what motivates you, it's not the certificate, it's not the, the paycheck, it's the larger purpose you'll do anything like you'll you'll spend your next day off doing the work for it because that purpose and that end goal is greater than yourself right and so how do we help kids to find in themselves that greater purpose so that no matter whether they have homework or no homework or whatever it is assignment or no assignment they're diving in because that purpose drives them Mm. 
Wow, you've you've just given me a gift here as we head into the midpoint break. Um, I I do a lot of mind mapping as a way of kind of figuring out what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And I write these phrases at the top or words at the top, like, mm. you know, patience, diplomacy, grace under pressure, mm. Um, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And you've just given me another one, which I'm going to start writing, which is work at the edge of your seat. I love that mm. phrase. Um, it says so much about how you come into something and Mm. the kind of energy that you project into the teamwork that you do. So that's great. Can I ask you a quick question? Sure. What sits you at the edge of your seat? Wow. Um, See, this is the second time you've hit me with a question. (laughs) (laughs) The other one was three years ago. Um, Wow. Um, I, I think what has me sitting on the edge of my seat is that I feel like we really are at a tipping point. We are at mm-hmm. an inflection moment, most especially here in Hawaii, but possibly nationally, possibly globally as well, where we are going to tip into a different era. And and I don't think, I, I feel very privileged if in fact this turns out to mm-hmm. be true to be alive when something like this happens. Mm. And I think it's most especially true in education. I think we have reached a tipping point where the last 130 years of education have been one way and we're tipping into a new way. And that new Mm. way is incredibly exciting. It's always incredibly exciting when you're at a tipping point, but I really think the new way, which has so many ancient roots in it, you know, in apprenticeships, in, you know, in guidance and sponsorship and coaching and mentoring, Mm. These are old, mm-hmm. old concepts in education and they're, they're coming back, but there's also new concepts that are there. So I think what keeps me on the edge of my seat is the fact that I'm kind of right there at that moment and I'm, I'm both trying to experience and possibly trying to help tip it. You know, it's yeah. like I'm at one, I'm underneath one end of the seesaw and I'm kind of pushing mm-hmm. up. Um, and that's a, that's a pretty cool idea. Yeah. It's a nice feeling. That's your why. Yeah, that's my why. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. So hey everybody, stay with us. After this short break, we will come back with more questions for Ululani Shiraishi. Stay with us. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Hawaii's business people and professionals want to support our public high school students across the state, like me, Law Yagovich, a senior at Kuku High School. And Hawaii's teachers and other educators want classroom speakers, curriculum advice, contest judges, mentors, and other support from businesses and nonprofits. The Climb High Bridge is Hawaii Department of Education's official platform to connect the two communities. It's like Match.com, specifically designed to connect businesses and schools. Learn more by sending an email to info at climbhigh.org. That's spelled C-L-I-M-B-H-I dot org. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the EntreEd Talk podcast. 
I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. Hey, everybody. My name is Josh Rapoon, and this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Today, we are with Ululani Shariishi, a Kamehameha Schools Maui Middle School ELA teacher and a graduate of the Kealaula Innovation Institute. So, Ululani, at the end of October here uh, in 2020, in a couple of weeks, you will present, actually, it's not a couple of weeks, it's only a week. Um, Yes. Yes. You will present at the 2020 Schools of the Future Conference. So my question is, what excites you about doing this presentation of your learning? And what small action steps do you want your participants to take on the Monday after the conference? Mm. Um, More than excited, well, maybe not more, but equally as excited is just being super nervous Mm. because it's, you know, you there's just a kuleana or a big responsibility as you are given um, the opportunity to speak anywhere like this or even every day in front of my kids I, I get nervous sometimes because it's a responsibility and it's a it's a gift that that you get to share with them and um, the topic is live it to learn it and it's all about what we've been talking about here today and in order to to share it and and give the gift you need to own it and you need to have the gift you need to live it and you need to mull it around to be able to then understand it enough to even have the privilege to speak it and so at the at the conference i am excited to be able to share a lot of the same kind of of things that we're talking about is how do you walk through the experiences how do you live bravely how do you live courage how do you take steps and and into sometimes hard and and difficult challenging things but you do it because you know it's good for you and and how do you build that self-efficacy within yourself and a growth mindset to be able to to take risks and that's what we're asking our kids to do and so um on monday when the when the teachers go back to school i'm hoping for one that in the process of being able to do those things that i just mentioned we need to listen and we need to listen to ourselves and we need to listen to our students and our kids and listen not only to their words, but oftentimes listen below their words to the heart of where those words are coming from and the places that those things are coming from. Because oftentimes, especially in middle school, kids will say one thing, but there's it, there's more going on underneath there. And to be intentional about hearing the hearts of people. And so that's going to be a focus too in the conference is is being able to listen, to understand, and to be present 
in the midst of moments to be able to understand and seize those moments and be um, available to what those moments have to teach us and what those moments have to um, mm. pour into us and us into them. Mm. You know, before the break, we were, you asked me the question about, you know, what has me on the edge of my seat. And um, and I talked about tipping points. And I think that's what you've just hit the nail on the head. You've identified one of the most important things that may happen as we tip from a way mm-hmm. of teaching that is more than 100 years old to a new way, which is that we went from talking and talking and talking to students to mm-hmm. listening to students. Mm-hmm. That's the sea change that's underway. And I'm feeling really encouraged by how much I'm hearing from educators, public, private, and charter, especially here in Hawaii, who are talking about we need to be listening to students. Yeah. Yeah, because we, and, and especially depending on when you were trained as a teacher, mm. it was about talking to kids. It was about you pouring into them. Mm-hmm. And in the process of that, we don't, um, we don't know these kids oftentimes that sit in front of us. And so how do we switch that, switch mm-hmm. those roles and how do we listen better? Right. So I want to dig a little bit deeper into the power of personalized learning, which is something I I know that you care about. Um, Mm -hmm. And I actually think it's one of the most misunderstood concepts in education. So bear with me for a second. I'm going to stand stand up on my soapbox here for a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, Parking kids in front of iPads is not personalized learning. And nor is allowing kids to move through a highly rigid subject matter curriculum at their own pace. That's not personalized learning. So what is your exploration into personalized learning and where's the journey taken you and what cool things in terms of student engagement have you seen along the way? Mm -hmm. Um, As I've been mentioning through this, our whole conversation around living it, to learn it. And I feel like going through the Kealaula um, innovation year with your nephew, Evan, and that is that was personalized learning and it was personalized learning for professionals. And as I went through it and, and had mentors who helped me to discover what it was, like peel back all the, the noise in my life to kind of hone in on what it is that I'm that I'm actually interested in and then helped facilitate my learning along the way and provided opportunities to support that learning. And they had conversations with me to help facilitate my thinking around it because we often are just so busy and chaotic in our minds that we don't know how to hone in on the important things. We kind of get lost and we go on bunny trails with lots of other things, but it distracts Mm -hmm. us from um, where we want to go. And mm-hmm. so that journey through the Kiala'ula um, program helped me to live personalized learning so that now as I mm. use it with my the students and I've walked through it, it'll it'll look different and it'll play out a little differently, but I can better understand my role as a facilitator in helping them to clear out the distractions, to be able to see and hone in on what they really want to do and 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 going in without knowing the answers or not having the answers but more importantly than that is to be able to listen well enough to paraphrase and pose thought-provoking questions that help 
students or people to to identify what's already inside of them and to bring it forward. Mm. And so, so often we kids have it inside of them. They just don't know how to access it yet. And so our job becomes through personalized learning, how do you help them to access that and then facilitate the learning along the way so that they know more about it and then they can use that knowledge to be able to serve and help other people. Mm. Wow. So, okay. So follow-up question to that. Um, so you and Kui Gaparo, who's uh-huh. a previous guest mm-hmm. on this podcast, you're team teaching a group of kids this fall, um, correct? Yes. And, yes. and it, uh, obviously during the pandemic. So you shared a Jamboard with me and something in that Jamboard just absolutely stopped me in my tracks. Um, on a virtual board, you asked kids to post 30 notes each stating, or 30 notes each, each stating 30 different things they might want to learn. So, all mm-hmm. right, you know, my listeners know I'm the, you know, education geek of all time, but I got very <laughs> excited about this. Um, so tell us, what is this activity all about? And then what happens next? So that's just that exploring part, because I think so often we don't even in our busy lives, we don't stop to even ask ourselves, what do I want to know? And we just keep charging through life. So the purpose of that activity was the first page was for them to have 30 ideas about um, what they like or what they're interested in. Do we even pause to know, like, what do we like? And and not having to Google it, like, what Mm -hmm. do I like? And then the next page was about um, what they're interested in. And then um, the third page was about their different experiences, moments, like places. And the goal is for them to, in conjunction with social studies and in sixth grade at Kamehameha, it's um, Hawaii and this place. And so how do we get the kids to get kama'aina or, or comfortable or aware of this place that they live in? And here on Maui, Social studies will cover like different places on Maui, the the history of Maui, this what what are um, the different um, places around here, and then I'll be focusing on the stories of the the kids' stories of this place. And so that Jamboard was to just help them to to get the distractions out and to mm-hmm. hone in and what are your ideas, and so to explore is what that. Mm. Jamboard was in efforts for them in the end to be able to capture their story. And it will go through knowing this aina, this place, and communication, the olalo part of it. And that'll, you know, there's a whole bunch of English things within that in communication, in, in speaking, and sharing a clear and concise message, in specificity of language. And, and so there's in that communication of telling their story embedded are the English skills, but it's personal and it's, and this is the personalized learning part about it. They get to choose which story, what impacts them, what experiences have told their story. So they have autonomy in that and they have voice and choice in, in what story impacts them that they want to capture. Wow. Okay. So, (laughs) okay. The top of the head is coming off here again. Um, Uh So, but before I want to go like right, but before I go right, I want to go left here for just a second and go back to uh-huh. something that you said earlier, which is 
I think, a very profound point and part of the tipping uh, point idea, which is that as teachers, um, it is, if the paradigm is shifting for teacher education to from, you know, a more traditional, like, here's a big conference, you go to a conference, you're a plant, you get watered, you go back to your school and you kind of run out of water and you wilt, or you, every PD event is really just sort of a mass event where some information is brought to you. If as a teacher, you're on a long learning journey, a personalized mm-hmm. journey, that's mm-hmm. going to influence who you are as a teacher in the classroom with your kids, right? And you you made that point. I just want to make sure that we emphasize that because that's one of the things that I see is changing and I'm really encouraged about that. Um, so then coming back to what you were just talking about. Um, so you and I both read this New York Times op-ed piece by Tom Friedman, which is titled After the Pandemic, mm-hmm. A Revolution in Education and Work Awaits. And one of the things that Friedman talks about is how young people need to become more than just problem solvers. They need to be problem finders. Mm. And so my, my, I, I think my thought, you can react to this thought is what you're doing with Kui and this work on the Jamboard and everything else that you're doing is in a way you're turning them from problem solvers into problem finders, because as they express their interest and in things they want to learn about, they'll discover problems that need to be solved. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Yes. And, and part of this journey through this, and Kui and I both don't like to call it a, a unit because a unit yeah. connotes an end, Yeah, but this learning has no end. It's, it's giving them skills to be able to identify and observe. And a big part of this unit is Kilo or observation. Hmm. And then from those observations to be able to wonder and wonder turns into the questions, and then the questions lead to pondering potentially the answers. Or if you've even thought about it, then it sits more toward the forefront of your mind. So as you're just engaging in life and something comes up, whether visual or audio, you're at the edge of your seat, like, hey, mm-hmm. and then you 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 lean into that. And so... Um, what was the question again? <laughs> well, so so what you you and Kui are doing is you're you're creating problem finders through yes, this process, yes. right? And it's that wondering, and and it stems from observing, and it stems from watching, and it stems from quieting yourself enough to look outside of yourself, mm-hmm. to look outside of the noise within yourself, to be able to see where are the problems, what mm-hmm. is not working. Why is and, and maybe it's not even a problem, but even just an observation, mm-hmm. which then helps to support a question or a wondering that comes up late, later. So, yes, I think at the root of that is observation in the problem mm-hmm. finding. And I keep coming back. I had this conversation with, um, and I'm going to ask you about this in a second, with Chris Baum, who's the founder of the Millennium School. Mm, um, I, yes. did a, I did a short episode with him uh, a week ago. Um, and, and part of what happened in that episode is that I just started wishing with all my heart and soul that I could be a middle schooler again and could uh-huh. go through it the way that Chris has developed it. And and I'm thinking the same thoughts about what you and Kui are doing, that if if I'm if I'm getting a chance to be a young person 
who could we we it's almost cliche to say making a difference but if mm-hmm. i if i could be out there just like figuring out what the problems are and then mm-hmm. maybe i'm going to work on it by myself maybe i want to gather a team together to figure out how to solve a problem i just mm-hmm. want the opportunity to be able to do that and it sounds like that's what you and kui are doing we're trying mm-hmm. and and we're living it too because you know we're coming up and and again like living what live it to learn it and there's tons of different problems that that we're navigating and so we're actually simultaneously with the kids you know looking for, looking for problems figuring out how to how to solve them mm. and and oftentimes it's posed to the kids as we run into them and it's posed to them and we navigate those together mm-hmm. and in could the, i comment yeah yeah could I add to to your comment about Chris? And he was at Millennium School in San Francisco, and I had gone there twice. And one of the things that that has really impacted a lot of what I've said, supported and impact what I've shared today and what I'm sharing at the um, School of the Future Conference and really just who I am, is when we were there, there was very, they were very intentional, him and another school leader named Newton, In our conversations, they were very present there. And it was very evident as they engaged with other students. They were, their body language, their their comments back to us as we shared, really exemplified listening well and, and understanding and empathizing in the moment. And we were there for probably like three hours. And then they asked us, they said, you know, this was the end of our time, but if you would like to stay longer, we, you know, we want to be available to you. And this isn't like a busy administrator schedules. They're offering this to us. Mm-hmm. And even the their word choice and, and this, the speed at which they spoke and moved was very much about the people that were in the room with them. And we all left without even saying anything when we got in the car. It was about the feeling of that place. And it very much stemmed from their engagement and presence with us, mm. which then I think, man, these kids, they have leadership and are around adults and modeling and who are facilitating and teaching this kind of way of being. And for you, and Kui, when you got back both times, like how did it play out in terms of thinking to yourself, I would like us here at KS Maui to be like that mm-hmm. as well. Were you guys thinking about that? Oh, for sure. <laughs> and, and and we did it in different ways. And, you know, and that's the great thing about kind of finding your people in the sense that finding people who have similar foundations and different strengths. And then you bring that together to create a strong force, you know, to be able to make an impact and to and to move forward together and encourage each other when it's hard. Mm, yeah, right. And I actually had a, a whole question laid out for you about those trips to the mainland. Um, mm-hmm. Were there were there besides the Millennium School? Were there other memories that really jump out, or or something that you really remember about that time? of exploration outside of Hawaii? Yes. Um, there were, there, there's a lot of different things, like just how structures of school and, and schedules of schools and, and all of that. But I think kind of stepping a little bit higher than that 
were the conversations and the reflection that the Kiala'ula members had after we left the school. And when we processed it and we engaged with our experiences there, and we all went to, or groups of us went to the same school. And so we had the same general experience. While when we talked about it, because of our where we were all coming from and the different places, that merging of reflection was really powerful. Mm-hmm. And it kept people wondering. And it was interesting because then later on at dinner, then someone said, hey, remember when we were in the car and we are talking about, and then it, it builds those observations like we were talking about, identifying, looking for those problems and wonderings to be able to just dive deeper into them. And sometimes it creates more, conf- maybe not confusion, but just more thinking around it, more wonderings as you're trying to answer one wondering, five more wonderings come up. But then that's, I think, the fascination and intrigue of learning mm. is to be able to broaden your your realm of wonderings because mm-hmm. then it it keeps you intentional as you move about your life to be able to engage in some different places. And it, I think there's excitement around finding things that you're interested in and right. wonder about. Wow, that's that's so cool. And and you know, again, back to the tipping point and why I'm feeling so encouraged in this moment is that as we gain such a diversity of education experiences, public, private, and charter across the state of Hawaii, that means that, I, uh, well, let me put it another way. I'm, I'm picking up evidence that these diverse places that are doing interesting things are welcoming people into their communities and, mm-hmm. and they're doing the kinds of things that you experience with Chris, which is taking the time to sit down with mm-hmm. people and that's awesome. If, if that actually continues to unfold, that's one of the major forces that will mm-hmm. be at work in terms of redesigning education in the state. Um, so I'm, I'm feeling super encouraged about that. Um, so, okay. Um, slight shift in direction here. So a couple, well, maybe not actually, a couple days ago, um, you rewatched Ted Dindersmith's film, Most Likely to Succeed, which is cool. And so I want to ask you a couple of questions about the film. So here's the first one. Um, the, the first one has to do with project-based learning. Um, if you remember in the film, students work on a giant mechanical wheel, which mm-hmm. blends social studies and makerspace learning. Um, and the project, though, really does nothing for the greater San Diego or greater California community around high tech mm-hmm. high, nor does it tackle essential global questions facing the world in 2015 when the film was made. So what are your thoughts about projects and the degree to which they are connected to real world issues? On one hand, um, I think that it's important that everything that we do has a greater purpose than the skill or the thing itself and that we help the kids to make connections to that. And, and we have to move away from verbal connections like, Oh, you're going to need this when you go to college or when you get a job, Um, as opposed to having them actually implement it and do it. And if they're going to, 
if they have to write something, then why not write an advertisement for the dance that com- that's coming up on Friday? Mm-hmm. Or if they're going to have to speak something, then why not do the morning announcements, you know, and, and just trying to find those ways to make that learning relevant. While at the same time, I do think that in um, most likely to succeed, all the skills that they learned in creating that real um, big project, the success, the struggle, the all those transferable skills, the collaboration that happened, the failure, the redoing, those are also very valuable skills in and just attaching it to new learning. So then from what I understand, they no longer, they had that wheel up in the front yes, of their school, right. but they no longer have it at the front because they realize that it served no greater purpose than to acknowledge this great thing that we did. Mm-hmm. And so that's an example of learning. Like, hey, we did this great thing and we learned a lot of things from the school perspective. And now we realize there's more for us to learn. Like there's a, there's a next step, but they most likely wouldn't have, known that or maybe observed so deeply that we like miss the whole give back component we miss the whole yeah. you know we learn to serve component but then here they are having learned it and then now they're doing different right so that's the that's what learning is about you know mm-hmm. celebrating where we are and how do we move forward how do we use this to improve where we're at to be better tomorrow than we were today. Mm. You know, funny story. My daughter, I went to California and and my daughter and I drove from San Francisco to San Diego because she was interested in High Tech High's um, graduate program. She's in graduate school Mm -hmm. at the same time that she's beginning as a teacher. And we had a funny moment when we visited High Tech High because I I came through the door. I'd been there before and I was like, so I want to show my daughter the wheel. And they were like, eh, it's in the back. And I was like, what? (laughs) Um, And then I heard the story and I was like, wow. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's really cool. Okay, so, so the the second question around most likely has to do with public exhibitions of learning. So, um, Ululani, this is a physics question, or actually, it might be a biology question, or maybe it's a, a psychology question. I, I wonder if you can put into words the energy, the the crashing of atoms and electrons that happens at such public exhibitions of learning. So this is not like a why do it question. It's a here's what happens when you do it question. And we're talking about like the hoike, the, yeah. the we've done all this work and now we're presenting. Yeah, exactly. Dwin at Four Kiala Ula, um, another middle school teacher and I, we partnered up and we had our kids walk through what we had labeled or called a passion project. And so it was personalized learning and they had to decide. Um, we went through this whole discovery process and then helped them to hone in on what they wanted to focus on and then how they were going to use that learning to positively impact their community. Mm-hmm. And so that project turned led into this exhibition event. And what I saw in that exhibition event and even in the process of leading up to it was an energy that was that was on fire as the kids were were emailing the community and and reaching out and creating in the classroom and doing um, field trips at home and getting their parents to build this or help them to figure out this and in efforts to bring this learning 
to the greater community on the night of the sharing, in addition to using that learning to be able to um, serve other people. And so there was a buzz and an energy. And even as I talked to parents, because the kids had set up little areas where they displayed their learning, their learning journey, and in whatever way that they chose to, whether it was a video or products or testimonials. And so as parents walked around, they were sharing what it was that they did. And and some of the things like um, most likely to succeed, the one kid who wasn't able to finish his mm-hmm. part of it, yeah. there were kids who didn't finish their their whole journey through that project. And they stood there with a couple of things on their area in their area. And that's also learning too. Mm-hmm. And, and just trying to be able to navigate and help kids to be able to navigate through the process, the success of it, the challenges of it, and how to stand back up and to be able to move forward, take the learning to impact the next learning that's in front of us. But it definitely, as far as just the culminating event of it there was definitely a high energy nervousness but they were excited to be able to share their journey and then the parents were surprised that sixth graders could do this some of the things that the kids did and um, the ways that they impacted their community and the goal is that then in seventh grade they continue they do it again and then in eighth grade they do it again and Mm. so it's not a one-time thing but it's just who we are we, we continue to observe and we continue to ask questions and we continue to learn to be able to give back. Mm. Wow, that's so cool. You know, I've, I've been thinking a lot lately. I, I do some journaling, some writing on LinkedIn, but I do it kind of quietly. I don't put a lot of splash into it. It's just sort of a platform where I uh, will write articles and, and um, just write about things that I'm thinking about. And and thinking about that process that you do it again, and then you do it again, you do, you do it again. And over mm-hmm. the course of your lifetime, you've sort of amassed a series of mm-hmm. public exhibitions of learning and people really get to know you. And that's different mm-hmm. than not knowing you, right? Mm-hmm. And then in those exhibitions, um, and whether it's quietly or publicly, mm-hmm you see that learning journey. And that's one of the things that we're trying to focus on and and is going to be infused into our school redesign Mm. is, and this is an old concept, portfolios and, and, you know, all of those capturing learning uh, over time and continuity. And so it's, it's old, but then how do we take this old, which you had talked about earlier, how do we take what has been around and, and been happening and re and bring it back in a way that's relevant for today using the technology that we have today in a way that can capture really a new audience today because the audience of yesterday is a different audience of today and you need different skills to be able to capture, Mm. um, to share a message today. Mm. And so um, that's being infused into our redesign is is how do we capture that learning journey Mm, so that kids and incorporating very... um, deeply into this learning journey is reflection and being able to to pause and look back and look at the learnings to be able to use that to move forward. Mm. 
That's awesome. So, Lulani, before we're coming up to the end here, um, which is amazing, this time has gone by like it was five minutes. Yeah, um, like we're just talking story. Like we're just talking story. <laughs> but um, before we get to the last question, I want to ask you one more follow-up, uh, which pops into my brain here um, about most likely. So this might be sort of a philosophical question, if you recall, and forgive me, listeners, if you have not seen the film, but you know, at the very end, Brian, who's that kid who doesn't uh, finish uh, mm-hmm. for public exhibition night, Ted and his director sort of chose to portray Brian in a heroic light that he keeps working through the rest of the school year and then into the summer until he alone finally finishes that part of the mechanical wheel. Um, and that's that's the way the film comes to an end. But I know from talking to Ted that there was a lot of resentment on the part of other students and their families mm. about the fact. Mm-hmm. In fact, they tried to film those students and they all refused. They were still pretty upset about that. So what, what are your thoughts about that in terms of failure and Brian's story and, mm. you know, the way that we portray that? I'm just curious. Can you ask the question again? Yeah. So let me put it like super straight. Do you feel mm-hmm. do you feel that it was appropriate to portray Brian as a sort of hero who finished the project in this big sort of determined gritty kind of way at the end mm-hmm. or did he is it more profound about how he let his teammates down and they didn't get to present on mm. exhibition night? That's an interesting question because I guess as I was rewatching it, and even when I watched it the first time, I recall now, um, in those moments when he was hustling around with, and his team was there, and he was kind of bossing his team around, and and you could see the frustration on his teammates' faces, and and in their tone of voice, and and in the struggle of trying to get it done, and and Brian's franticness. I guess I just inferred that there were challenges there. Mm. There there was a lot that wasn't filmed, but in those moments that they did capture, I I guess I just assumed there was there was all of that that went on. And while I realize that in the film and the purpose of the film that I can understand why they chose to portray Brian as kind of the the got it done in the end kid, I also I, I thought that it was, I felt like it was clear in, in the film that there were definite challenges and, and mm-hmm. we all can relate to that. And I think that that's what this film also portrays in another level of the message is that collaboration that happens, the success that is felt, the failure that is felt. And especially when it's so public like that, right. you know, it's not just you in, in, the, in that mix. It's you, your actions impact other people. Mm-hmm. And I think I I agree with you. And I think one of the things that comes out of it now, and it feels very timeless, is that the world is changing and we're no longer really going to be able to just work alone like we have. And that Mm -hmm. collaboration and teamwork is going to be sort of the paradigm as we go forward. And this is what's going to happen. We're going to experience all these kinds of things. And we have to, Mm -hmm. you know, begin preparing kids for, uh, for those kinds of things, even at an early age. And that becomes the conflict management to be able to listen and understand before you shoot off your mouth and to be able to empathize, you know, all of those soft skills, what it's, they're being called 
are are so valuable. Mm-hmm. That's the, my last guest on the podcast, uh, Pookumu uh, Kaulana Smith at Laupahoe uh, Public Charter School, talked about looking listening and shut the mouth, um, yes. which is just sort of a, you know, a process for adults as they live uh-huh. in a school community, but also a set of skills and habits and dispositions for kids um, right. as they move forward with the world. So, okay. And then in the process of that, if I could just add yeah. one more thing, in the process of that, the discerning, mm-hmm. um, the wisdom that comes with knowing when to speak, because we want kids to have a voice. We want them to know, um, to be heard. But there's also that discernment between the the listening and the speaking and making sure that you're thoughtful about what comes out of your mouth. Mm, right, right, exactly. No more needed value or disposition uh, at this particular moment in time in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, Ululani, we're, we're down to the last question. Um, so in some pre-interview material you provided me, I found the following little gem. You wrote, and I quote, I'm striving to leave margins in my life to Mm -hmm. allow for unexpected opportunities. So I'm a really big believer in the idea that words matter a lot. And Mm -hmm. clearly these words matter a lot to you. So could you share with us some unexpected opportunities that have happened to you because you've left some margins in your life? Oh, Josh, you are so good. (laughs) Um, These are the questions usually I ask other people. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, Yeah, but I love them. Oh, unexpected opportunities. Um, I would say... With my oldest daughter, who's 26, Mm. Uh, um, when she was in middle school and high school, we had a really tumultuous relationship. It was hard. I was controlling and and crazy and high expectations and and pounding into her. She's the oldest. And and it was really challenging. And as she got older is when I thought, I need to leave those margins to be available because we don't know how to do this relationship right now. And I don't know how to engage. (laughs) So I'm going to leave margins in my crazy life to allow her to enter in. And when she enters in, I want to be present and I want to, I want to see it when she enters in because in those relationships, there's small little nugget or small little baits that, that you people will put out because it's unsafe in those places. And so I want to see it and I want to be aware of it and I want to take it in and allow her that moment. And so that's when I first started thinking about margins and um, leaving space to be able to see where there's opportunities or where people want to enter in. And as a result of leaving those margins and her offering out opportunities and me being, being having those margins to be aware and then entering into those places, or even just like looking at her and keeping my mouth shut. Cause that was a good time to keep my mouth shut. Um, we were able to over the years, rectify and build this relationship that 
she has taught me so much in the, in just how to listen. And that's so, such a big part of it because I was such a talker and how to listen and how to listen beneath the words. And and she even spoke, like laid it out for me that oftentimes her words and she gave specific word choices that she had. It wasn't that I was this, but underneath, I just wanted you to accept me. I just wanted you to know that I'm good and you can trust me. But her words said vile and and nasty middle school and high school kinds of teenager things. But underneath those words, she just wanted to be trusted. And if I didn't learn to leave those margins, who knows where that relationship would be? And when it comes down to it, we can learn how far the moon is away or we can learn how to write a paragraph or where to put the the period but when it comes down to it it's about our relationships Mm. and and engaging with other people so Mm. the value of those margins are being able to leave space for people That's awesome. I think that's a a wonderful takeaway for our listeners who will catch this episode. Um, A a real tangible something that they can Mm -hmm. walk away with. And and I really appreciate that. Um, So Ululani Shiraishi, thank you for taking the time to do this interview with me today. Please, you and your family take care and we will talk to you again soon. Yes. Mahalo, Josh. And now it's time for a listener review. This one comes from 808 Hines and is titled, What Education Podcasts Should Be. 808 Hines writes, quote, I know of no one more connected to and passionate about the topic of school transformation as Josh Rapoon. He has curated a list of powerful change makers in our education community and uses Hawaii as a lens to show what school could be with intellect, passion, and incredible humility. The best way to understand how to help schools change is to see what it looks like from within the change makers view. For you researchers, think of each podcast as its own case study. Wow. Thank you, 808 Hines. In fact, this past weekend, I had the opportunity to present this series to a group of educators that represent the 2020-2021 cohort of the Kealaula Innovations Institute. I made this exact point that our series is a masterclass resource to them and like PD in your pocket. If you like this series, please give us a rating and review at your favorite podcast store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. My editor, show consultant, and sound engineer is Daniel Gilad at DG Sound Creations. Daniel, an amazing musician, created the original theme music heard in these episodes. To learn more about Daniel or to hire him for your next music gig, see our show notes where you will find his email address and Facebook URL. This series is funded by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the documentary film Most Likely to Succeed and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Send your feedback to mltsonhawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mltsonhawaii. And please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. 
Until next time, please stay safe, wear your masks, stay physically distant, but not socially distant from one another, and please bring kindness and compassion into the world. See you soon.